considering you'd had to take that bet several times over the last few years at that point, right? You'd had to take it at least twice in 2008, once in 2007, as the markets kind of weren't sure whether they were through the worst of it or not. You had to stand up and go, no, it's not done yet. But at this point, unlike the other times, I ignored my own framework. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete, proven, step-by-step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Rao Paul. Rao, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. Let's do it. I'm going to tell the audience a little bit about you. Former hedge fund manager who retired at 36, Rao Paul, is a co-founder of Real Vision, a financial media company offering in-depth video interviews and research publication from the world's best investors. He has run a successful global macro hedge fund, co-managed Goldman Sachs hedge fund sales business in equities and equity derivatives in Europe, and helped design the BBC TV program, Million Dollar Traders, training participants in investment and risk management strategy. Raul retired from managing client money and now lives in the Cayman Islands from where he manages Real Vision and writes the Global Macro Investor, a highly regarded original research service for hedge funds, family offices, sovereign wealth, and other elite investors. Raul, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. My life, yes, I'm half Indian, half Dutch. Grew up in England, lived in India for a short period of time. Then after I left GLG running hedge fund, I moved to the Mediterranean coast of Spain, lived there for 10 years, and then in a journey to find a, the world's perfect beach, I ended up in the Cayman Islands, found a stretch of beach on an island of 140 people, a little Cayman, and bought a piece of land and built a house there, and then ended up building Real Vision, moving to Grand Cayman, I still have the house in Little Cayman, and eventually also meeting my wife-to-be, I'm getting married next week, my wife-to-be in Little Cayman, so in 140 people. So there you go. And that's a small sample size that you're selecting from there. Here's a small sample size. <laughs> but I've been, around the, I've been around the block. There's been plenty of sampling. Yes, I, I suppose that you know that the reality is it's not the sample size that's as important as the ultimate selection of that one person. So Exactly. <laughs> and um, just what does an average day or week or month look like from you? I see you all over the internet doing lots of interviews, doing a lot with Real Vision. I'm just curious. Extremely busy. I'm extremely ridiculously busy because I'm running basically three businesses, two writing businesses plus Real Vision. Real Vision, we've got 78 employees, 80 employees around the world, 50 or so of them in New York City. So I go from Cayman Islands to New York City. Cayman Islands is where our headquarters is. We've got staff in London. We've got staff around the world. We've even got staff in Malaysia. So a lot of traveling, tremendous amounts of traveling. So I am probably in New York. I'm probably on the road two weeks out of four. And then when I get a chance, I try and go out diving and stuff like that. So I try and get to enjoy the island. And every fourth weekend, it's happening this weekend, I go to Little Cayman, where there's nobody there, and I hole up and write The Global Macro Investor, which I've been writing for 15 years now. And I love that kind of peace and tranquility of being on this perfect, ultra-silent beach, 
and there I you know, have my Bloomberg going and spend my time writing and thinking. Mm, I love that disconnecting. I mean, I've got to do the same thing when I sit down to write because otherwise it's just hard to, to build the thoughts. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. I've made plenty of screw-ups in my time. And yeah, you have to, you have to learn the hard way. But this one was the hardest lesson I think I had to learn. I had started Global Macro Investor in 2005 and I was managing my own money as well as as well as advising many of the world's most famous and largest hedge funds, family offices, often wealth funds, that kind of stuff. I had a first year out of the gate, did phenomenally well. Second year, phenomenally well. So around 2006, 2007, started sensing what was going on and managed to switch around a long emerging market position to a short emerging market position. Short, you know, managed to go from risk on to risk off over 2007. Started nailing that whole situation. 2008, I completely got right. And so I had really made a huge reputation for myself because I'd also done very well in 2000, 2001. And I'd also, you know, obviously lived and breathed the Asian crisis and stuff like that. So I had in macro, you know, I'd nailed the big one in macro terms. But 2009 came along and I have a process by which I follow. And unlike most economists, I'm a business cycle economist. So I look at most economists build a linear model of GDP and it's ridiculous because actually if you show a small child a chart of GDP it goes up and down it's cyclical almost no economic schools outside of Austrian economics which I'm not particularly in Austrian but the general business cycle theory is what I look at and I'm a markets you know, applied economist so I look at markets in conjunction with economies and look for the opportunities between that so I'd use something like ISM the Institute of Supply and Management Survey which is a survey of purchasing managers in the US to give me an idea of whether they are confident or less confident and of the economy going forwards. Why does that work? Well, because it actually, oddly enough, perfectly or almost perfectly forecast GDP. But when you put, when you look at that cycle, that up and down cycle, when you do things like look at the year on year rate of change of the S&P or oil or gold or copper or the Korean one or the Korean stock market or emerging markets, they're all the same. They all go up and down with the US business cycle. Now, there has been some, some decoupling. You see it occasionally when China came on the scene in 2007 and 6. You saw things like copper and oil decoupling. Oil, if you remember, in 2008 hit $140. And that was the decoupling from the Chinese excess demand. But generally speaking, the business cycle works well. So I have a framework from which I follow and analyze global economies. So... That framework had allowed me to nail the whole situation going into the, the financial crisis and the granularity of which I use. I don't just use the ISM. I look at forward-looking indicators within it, stuff like that. But 2009, the world set up in a way that I was looking that we had two choices. One is that they had done enough and the system was to be saved, or they hadn't done enough and things were going to get worse. And considering you'd had to take that bet several times over the last few years at that point, right? You'd had to take it at least twice in 2008, once in 2007, as the markets kind of weren't sure whether they were through the worst of it or not. You had to stand up and go, no, it's not done yet. But at this point, unlike the other times, I ignored my own 
framework. So my own framework was suggesting that ISM and the business cycle had probably bottomed. Not certainly, but probably. And my view was that there were other hurdles that may be there. And I was really, obviously, emotionally caught up with it, thinking that actually it was going to get worse and it was going to go lower. And so that would be, in my terms, I think of probabilistic outcomes. It was probably the 10% chance that I backed as opposed to the 90% chance that I didn't back, which was that the business cycle had, had played its role and that, that you know, we will see risk return back to markets and there'll be some recovery. So that process was very expensive to me. So after a series of four years of the best returns I'd ever had, I'd had by far and away the worst year I'd ever had in investing or in advising. And that was 2009. And psychologically, it took a few years to get over it. I kind of got over it by about 2000. No, actually, it was difficult because 2012 was the, was the Eurozone crisis. So that was of the same ilk. You're still kind of set up for, okay, I understand this. But then 2013, 14, 15, they're kind of, I did okay, ups and down years, because you're psychologically kind of a little bit scarred by all of that. Because don't forget, Draghi had saved the day at the end of the Europe one. He was on the very brink. I was living in Spain. We were having to buy food and store it. And we're having to buy a generator because we weren't sure the banking system would last, considering that Cyprus had completely imploded. Greece had imploded. You know, the Cyprus banking system had shut down entirely. People forget that. So it was, a, it was an extraordinary moment in time. So that was the knock-on effect is, in 2009, I ignored my framework. By 2012, thought I was comfortable and had got over the psychological damage of having a, a, something like that. And then it still affected me until about 2014, so, 2013, 14, yeah. And um, let's, let's go through the lessons that you've learned from that. And particularly, I think, you know, what's fascinating for the listeners is, number one, you mentioned about the psychology and the emotion of it. And also, you know, I would hi highlight that, you know, someone like yourself, for a lot of the listeners would say, come on, you know, how could you make such a mistake or how could that happen? Or many, some of the listeners have their own frameworks and they're saying, that's not going to happen to me. So I'm curious, what did you learn from this experience? I learned several things. Is, look, nothing is a certainty, but put odds in your favor. So I should have not taken as much risk. I could have still been negative. I could have still overrun, but I should have taken less risk. However, what the difficulty was, is I had gone against the crowd several times in 2007, 2008, and it had made an extraordinary return for me. Right, so, so the, the very thing that has given you the best returns of your life is the very thing that bites you. The difference was the framework wasn't as probable. In fact, it was a low probability event as opposed to a higher probability event when I took the big bets. So there is risk sizing within it. There is also the emotion of you've been winning a lot and you tend to, if you're not careful, get hubristic. So hubris comes into that thinking, no, I'm right. I can override this. And so it's, yeah, it's against your framework. It's, it's hubrism and, and also just the misassessment of probabilities. Great. So let me summarize what I take away from it, listening to it and see if there's anything that I missed. The first thing is that, you know, confidence is something that builds over time as we invest, as we do anything. And unfortunately, confidence sometimes 
most of the time leads to overconfidence. And so this is kind of one of the most classic behavioral biases that we always have to be careful. And as we always say in the industry, if, you know, if you're, if you're overconfident, the, the, the market will teach you a lesson. The second thing, you know, I, I'm really, it's really interesting about ignoring the framework because there's also people out there who have a framework that just doesn't work. You know, frameworks break. Frameworks work during certain times and sometimes they don't. And it's interesting to hear about, okay, I think I had a good enough framework that could, that could produce good results throughout the whole period of time. Now, I think the, the lesson that I learned from that is that you don't have to abandon your framework, but you know, following it, number one, is critical, but questioning that framework is another important part of it. And the other one is emotional, you know, the emotional aspect. You know, it's just so easy for us to get caught up in the emotion of success and the emotion of failure and the emotion of trying, you know, the whole job of a professional investor is to take a bet, to try to find something that the rest of the market doesn't see and take a strong view on it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a strong position, but definitely a strong view and at some point, strong positions. That's what we're supposed to do, but sometimes the emotion gets caught up. And the last thing is the, you know, we like to say that hindsight is twenty twenty, but, you know, that's kind of nonsense in some ways because hindsight bias is very real. When we look back at the crisis in 2008, as you described in Spain, as, as I look back at the 1997 crisis and people jumping off of buildings in Bangkok, you know, that's not something that you realize when, you, when someone looks back in a book or something like that, that, you know, the decision make, I, I always say that I made the best decision I could with the information I had at the time, not with the information I had today. So those are some of my thoughts. Is there anything that you would add to that? No, I do think the hindsight thing is an important one because we as humans, as you say, we kind of anchor our biases on things because as we understand them today and What's really interesting is I wrote an article in 2012, which was called The End Game. And it wasn't an article. I actually presented it at the Morgan Stanley Hedge Fund Conference in Shanghai. That was March 2012. And it was the end game because Europe was very close. And I was like, the probability of something really bad happening is, is playing out in front of our eyes. Somebody got hold of that presentation and sent it to the media. And it became the most read widely read financial article in the history of the internet. And what happened was, immediately it came out, Europe absolutely imploded. As I said, you know, it was an extraordinary time where Spain was forced to take $10 billion from the ECB. If not, all of their banking system would have gone. And I was living in Spain. People don't realize that 30% of my friends went bankrupt because we were in a beach town and they're all in property and they all went bust. I mean, that the unemployment hit 50%. And what's interesting is even today on the internet, people look back and go, see that idiot, he got it completely wrong. The world didn't end. I'm like, it may not have ended for you, but they were rioting in the streets across all of Europe. The indignados, those people in Spain marched from the fields to the cities. They were torching cars and buildings. I mean, it was an extraordinary time. And looking back, like you said about the Asian crisis, People go, well, you got that wrong. Well, A, I actually financially benefited from it, which was an odd situation. As you know, when, when you see something like the Asian crisis, it feels really odd when it's in your backyard. It's different mm. when you're shorting the Thai button based in London. Very different when you're 
shorting your own market and you see the pain around you. So that yeah. was the, that whole thing, that hindsight thing. Yeah. It's, it's very real. I mean, when, when the 97 crisis happened, I lost my job in 98 and we had started our business coffee works, my best friend and I, Dale, and we basically had to decide that, look, we have to move into the factory. We, the only way we can survive is to cut all costs down to the minimum and not, we didn't know how long it would be. The economy fell, the economy contracted by 11% in 1998 in Thailand. We were the epicenter of that. And it really did take about three or four years before people started spending again, companies started spending again. So the pain is very real. And that, that is very hard to, to put into a textbook or a history book about that. So I think hindsight is very, we can be very biased when we look back at it. All right, let's wrap this up by saying based upon this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? The one action, I think you nailed it, is have a framework for starters. Use your framework, but do test your framework because it does change, as you say. Those things will probably keep you on the straight and narrow for most of it. Now, your framework may even be risk management. It may be how you stop losses. It can be whatever it is. And different people have different frameworks that work for them. But stick to it, do test it, and have the faith in it and understand how it's going to work. Fantastic advice. Now, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I'm getting married in a week's time, so I'll do that first. That's <laughs> That'll be my done. biggest hurdle. And that's I'm getting married in Marrakesh in the middle of the desert outside Marrakesh in Morocco. So, so that'll be, that, that's the next big thing. And really, for me, my, most of my life is currently uh, tied up in real vision and, and this incredible journey of creating the Netflix of finance and creating the world's best financial video content that's all about storytelling and engagement. And it makes finance interesting, unique, and it's an amazing place for people to learn. So that whole journey is what I'm continuing with. And that's, you know, the, the hope for me is to continue the expansion rate that we've been seeing over the last five years. For the listeners out there that haven't gone to Real Vision, I highly recommend you do it. I'll put in links in the show notes, including some of the most interesting interviews that could really blow you away with the amount of information that's being provided by Real Vision is really impressive. And it's a great tool and resource for all of us to, you know, keep building our knowledge and, and understand what's going on and just the concept. I love that tagline, the Netflix of finance. finance. Very cool. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Raul, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And congratulations, you have taken your worst investment ever and turned it into a teaching tool that can help lots and lots of people. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Make mistakes. You only learn from making mistakes. You can hear me make mistakes, but you'll only really understand it when you make your own mistakes. So you can make your mistakes as long as you size your trades right. That's it. Great advice, listeners. And that's the second person out of more than 130 interviews that has said, make mistakes. Just do it. You know, a lot of people say, you know, don't do this or do this or do that. But only two people have said, yourself and one other, have said, do it. You're going to lose money, but you're going to learn from it. Yeah. Exactly and here, right. 
here we have the learning. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.